Welcome to Life Church Bath, and thank you for choosing this message. If you'd like to learn and hear more about who we are and what we get up to, please go to our website at lifechurchbath.com. Enjoy the message. Thank you, Jonathan. It's hard not to do your best when you've been set up so well, isn't it? Wow. Do you know what? It's a huge privilege to be here. I've been here when the Holy Spirit is literally roaring through this place like a tornado. So it'll be very exciting to see that again. Why don't we just stand? Um, Because I'll tell you why. During the prayer before the service, a lady was saying that she felt that we should stir up the well of healing didn't she? So I just feel like let's do that. I mean, we can just give you a hand up if you have experienced some relief or improvement since you were prayed for earlier in the service. Just one, two, three. That's wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. Four over there. Lord Jesus, we give you glory and honor, and we just invite you to continue to move, and whether those people have been just improved or completely healed. Lord, we're looking for 100% healing. And everybody else who has been prayed for this morning or who hasn't, I just want to invite you to put your hand on yourself again where the need is and just imagine your hand is the hand of Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord. You're the healer. Lord, we know just we don't know but we read and we see and we kind of understand how much it costs you to give us our healing so today again we stir up that well of healing lord jesus in this place hey thank you lord we ask you to continue what you've begun in those who are feeling better lord we agree again with the prayer for the guy whose name escapes me with the brain tumor, and we just curse every single cancer cell in that body that it would just literally evaporate. Lord, we ask you to give him his life back in Jesus' name, and that which you've called him and his precious wife to, they would be able to fulfill and live a good long time to do it, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for every miracle that has happened in this place over the years, over the half a century God we're asking for more we're asking for more Jesus that your name be glorified in Bath hey hey sha, sha. Jesus ha whoa Jesus Lord let it be that people start coming to church first to get healed before they even go to the doctor God, yeah, come to the healer first. Yeah. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we ask you to move by your spirit in this place. Just intensify that sense of your presence here with us today, Lord Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord, those hearts that are a bit dry, I'm asking for time of refreshing to come. Even now. In this place, Lord. Hey, mm. Thank you, Lord. 
Yes, Jesus. This is where I kind of go a little bit. Ah, is there anyone here called Vanessa? Sorry. I shouldn't say sorry as well, should I? That's kind of defeating the object a little bit. Is anyone here called Vanessa? If, you, if there is, just shout out. No? Okay, well, we'll park that one then. So take a seat and let's see where we go. Um, I'm just getting used to the new glasses and the lights and everything. So if I do this a bit, forgive me. Um, oh, man. I walked into co-op the other day. And what, what happens is uh, co-op give us their stuff as it goes out of date and we use it for various projects. So we have a homeless project and we feed the homeless and we also um, do up boxes and we also take a van and give it out free of charge to people who feel like they need a bit of help with the cost of living and so on. And so I walked into co-op the other evening about 9.15 and it was really, really quiet as it often is. And I'm looking for the manager or somebody because you could just walk in and rob the shop and walk out again, which seems a bit wrong. So I'm looking for somebody to help me. And I go down this aisle and there's one of the staff there. And she looks up and she says, Jesus Christ. And I said, actually, no, I'm not him. Easy mistake to make. But I am actually one of his really good friends. So if there's, and I talk to him every single day. So if there's anything you'd like me to talk to him about on your behalf, I'm really happy to do it. And she starts laughing. She says, oh, where do I start? And anyway, we didn't develop that too much. But there's another story along the lines, which I'll tell you a bit later on. But the thing is that people... We have to start getting used to the idea of people mistaking us for Jesus, I think. I think actually that's what's supposed to happen. I think when we turn up, it's supposed to be like Jesus has turned up. So things begin to happen that couldn't happen before. Let's just have a little quick look into our Bibles and we'll have a we'll see where we get to. So um, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We've got this incredible story, and things are not going well for King Saul and his army. In fact, they've had a lot of difficulty, and they're, feeling, they're kind of literally being pinned down and held down by the Philistines, who was their kind of like long-term enemies. And uh, so something needs to happen. Something needs to break up the deadlock that they're in. And King Saul has a young warrior called David who's doing incredible things. But this little story is about Jonathan, who was Saul's son. So we've had Jonathan here today doing a great job. Well done, Jonathan. And uh, so we'll just dive in on verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to... Oh, hold on. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Oh, oh no, let's just go in. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, 
Come, let us go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, like, Woohoo, here we are. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes from where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed, sorry, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, about half a furrow's length in an acre of land. So, Russ, you can tell us how long that is. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Or it became, the Lord made a very great panic, Some, it can be said. So here we go. So we got this incredible story. The Israelites are being kind of driven into holes in the ground. We discover that in the chapter before, there were no blacksmiths in the land because the Philistines did not want the Israelites to be weaponized. They didn't want them to have decent swords. There was only two swords in the whole Israelite army. That was one for King Saul and one for Jonathan. So you can imagine there's this army holding them down. Their morale has like slipped away and they're living in holes in the ground, literally hiding anywhere they can, like animals really. And Jonathan is looking at the situation and in his heart he's saying, this is just wrong. I think Jonathan and David had spent enough time together to have um, infected each other with a significant amount of faith. And so Jonathan has got some of that same faith that we see in David. And David's response to Goliath, if you remember, was like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It's like, why are you letting this happen? Why is this situation being allowed to continue when actually we're the people of God? That's a really good question, isn't it? And so Jonathan is in that same kind of place of indignant faith. And he's like, this is not a good situation. So he's talking to his armor bearer. And I don't really know quite how the relationship dynamic worked with the armor bearer. But I guess they had a kind of a few extra weapons, like a golf caddy that the, the warrior could call on and say, hand me my spear 
valiant friend and then the valiant friend would hand the spear or maybe it would be give me the sword with two handles give me the war hammer I don't know anyway so Jonathan talks to his armor bearer and he's and he says this most profound thing that I would love it that the Holy Spirit would burn it into our hearts today he says for what is to stop the Lord delivering by many or by few. Should we say that together? What is to stop the Lord delivering by many or by few? Do you know what? Actually, I can't hear anything. All I can hear is me. So I'm going to hide this, and then you're going to shout it out in a big, loud voice. Ready? See, often we have this idea that it's only with a big crowd and a big turnout that God's going to do anything. And our expectation is not in God himself. It's actually in our numbers and in our numerical strength. And Jonathan has seen something entirely different. He knows that actually the only one who's going to change the power dynamic in this situation is the Lord himself. It's only going to work if God turns up. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I have never, ever healed anybody of anything by my own ability. I have a daughter who's a doctor, and she can do things that help to facilitate the healing process that God has built into the human body, But even then, she doesn't heal them. She facilitates what God has already set up because of her skill and her training. And she can identify obstacles to healing and set that person up to get well and the natural process to recover with a bit of help and maybe a bit of medicine, a bit of surgery, whatever. But there are times when I've been called to pray for people and I just think, man, this situation is utterly appalling. There's really, really, totally nothing I can do to change this situation. I was called out one time and incidentally, my little book here is available out of the front. It's, it's not a world bestseller just yet, but you buy and it might be make all the difference. Um, but I tell a story in here of when I got called out to go and pray for a lady who was in a coma. It wasn't, it wasn't just a n- normal coma. What had happened was she'd collapsed outside, banged her head on the concrete, gone unconscious but stopped breathing. So she'd stopped breathing for 20 minutes. That's not good for you. It's not good for your brain and it usually causes irreversible brain damage. So this lady had been, so I, I get a message from her daughter. Could I go and pray for her? She's in hospital. So I, I'm, I'm literally just about to open a bottle of beer and eat a pizza with my wife. And I think I'll do that in a minute. I'll do that when I get back. So anyway, I get in the car and as I'm driving to Dorchester, I'm thinking, and having this conversation with Jesus, it goes a bit like this, Lord Jesus. There is only one of us in this car who can heal anyone, and it's not me. (laughs) It's 
So if anything's going to happen, it's going to be because you did it. So I would really very much like you to come and take over from now and just take the situation into your own hands. So I walk into the hospital, it's intensive care, and all this family who I don't know are sitting in this little waiting area with very long faces. And I say, oh, hi, I'm Paul. And I meet, I see the girl who I know, and I say, I've come. And they, someone says, are you here to do the last rites? And I thought, do you know what? No one's ever trained me how to do the last rites. I don't even know what how you do the last rites. So I said, no, actually, I've come to pray for her to be healed. I thought, I might as well at least kind of state my faith and make it, put, put words to it. So they're looking at me, and one of them says, well, she's not a, she, she's not a religious person. I said, actually, I don't think that's going to make the least bit of difference right now because she's in a coma. And so I say, why don't you come with me and let's see if we can pray. So we gather around her bed and I say, should we hold hands? I'm trying to kind of just lighten the tone because it's very not an atmosphere of faith. It's very kind of like somber tone. So we stand around the bed and, and I pray and I really try and make it last a long time so I sound like a proper preacher. And it's like really tiny short. It's like about three seconds. So I, I, I think I better do it again. <laughs> I still think I'm an amateur. So I try again. And I basically, it's just Jesus. Will you come and heal this lady and raise her up and do stuff? Get her breathe, you know, get her life going again and let her not have brain damage, that kind of thing. And I said, well, that's it. That's me done. Please let me know when there's any improvement. And so I nip off before anyone can pour cold water on my little tiny glimmer of faith that I've got going. And um, the next day I hear from her daughter and she says, my mum blinked three times today. And I said, I think that's encouraging, isn't it? And she said, yeah, I hope so, you know, and the prayer emoji and stuff. So anyway, the next day, she sat up in bed, took the breathing tube out, began to speak, had no brain deficit, no loss, nothing, no problem at all. It's so good, isn't it? Because it's so, some, um, Bob Mumford said, when we pray and God shows up, it makes us look good. And it, it kind of does. But the thing is, what we really want is for him to look good because he is good. Isn't he? Really what we want is for people to be able to see him as he really is. And so we've been doing just precisely what you did earlier with the guy. What's his name again? Melvin. Melvin. And so we're going to pray for him back at home. We, we, um, we heard of a guy, this is a year ago now, um, who is my son's brother-in-law's dad. So it's kind of a bit of a slight few steps away from being a close friend of ours. But um, And he was a super fit, 50-something-year-old guy. We used to do ultra-marathons. He's really sharp and, you know, would, like, run 100 miles, no problem. And he was out training, and he was on his bicycle, and he clipped a car, 
and <clears throat> came off his bike, caused massive, massive injuries to him, like lacerations to his liver, punctured lungs, broken ribs, everything else, head injury. And he was in a coma. So suddenly from being like super fit, he is 100% unfit and literally clinging to life by a tiny little thread. So we get to hear this and, and I'm kind of stirred because I like to do fitness and I like to keep fit. But I just think, man, to be from there to there in one just second, bam. And so as a church, we prayed and we said, Jesus, will you raise him up? Then we were at kids camp last year. And so we got the kids praying and one of my prayers was, Jesus, let him begin to indicate to people that he's alive. You know, he's kind of conscious, but just, you know, or at least his brain is functioning, but he's unconscious. So to give some signals like squeezing a hand or something so that the doctors could see that he's still there. Anyway, this, I, I hadn't realized how bad things were. At that point, I was praying that prayer, which was probably good because it meant I was still praying with faith and a little bit of ignorance as well. And um, they, it turns out that he, the, the doctors had told his family to come in and say goodbye. They said, he's dead. We need to harvest his organs because he was an organ donor and... We just need to switch off the machine. So what we'll do is we'll harvest his organs the next day. We'll turn off the machine. So the family all came in and said goodbye while we're busy praying for him to be restored to life. So um, then, so we're praying for these signs that he'll give these signs. And, and a, the next day, instead of turning the machines off, a different doctor came in and said, I want to keep the machines running. I want to do some more tests. And the next day after that, he began to communicate and began to give him. I know, isn't this glorious, isn't it? And so we're praying as a church. We're praying at kids camp. And God is beginning to do something. And, and he begins to communicate. Literally, a few days later, he's conscious. He's out of bed. He's got no brain deficits at all. He's not lost any memory. He's talking to people about stuff that was planned before his accident. Oh, man. It's just so good, isn't it? And, and, but I think the thing is, the difference is, one situation, it was me on my own going in and just saying, God, come on, please, do you, you be the difference in this room. Another situation, it's the whole church praying as a congregation. And we've seen actually just over the past 12 months some really significant healings that have happened when we've done the second, when it's been the whole church praying together. And so I want to really encourage you guys to do corporate prayer <clears throat> on a Sunday morning when people, you know what I mean, when it's like the impossible situation. And here's a question as well to think about over lunch. What is harder for God to do, a small miracle or a big miracle? Because they're both impossible, aren't they? It's like we think, oh, that's a really big miracle. But that's a small... 
a small miracle. What's a small miracle? Healing someone from back pain? I don't know. For that person, it's a big miracle. But you know what I mean? We do weird things with logic in our heads, don't we? And we talk ourselves out of faith very, very quickly. Am I the only one who does that silliness? Talk, talking myself. I, oh, man. I am trying to rebuke myself rather than carry on with it because I think it's so, oh, so again. Anyway, right. So we prayed for this guy, and he was, this is another guy, we prayed for as a church, and he was dying, and he was believed to have cancer. So his whole body was full of cancer, so they put him on end-of-life care. And we, I'd prayed for him 20 years ago, and he'd been healed of cancer, just completely healed, amazing. And he'd lived long, and he was into his early 80s now. And part of my mind is thinking, well, do you know what? He's not done bad. And I'm thinking, but is that how the story is supposed to end, with cancer coming back and finally claiming him? It was a different, albeit different cancer, but it felt like a very poor conclusion to the miracle story of before. So anyway, so we pray as a congregation He's on end-of-life care, and his family are in the church, and um, nothing happens. Then, after a week or so, they say, oh, you haven't got cancer. We've looked, and it's, there's none. But, like, the week before, he was full of it. It was all through his body, and he was on end-of-life. Anyway, so... He hasn't got cancer anymore. So I'm kind of thinking, this is amazing. Jesus, you've done it again. Wow. But like at the same time, he's still really sick. And he's like critically ill in hospital. So they're like, the doctors are really scratching their heads and thinking, what could it be? They do all these tests, endless tests. And they still couldn't reach a conclusive diagnosis. And then he would make a bit of progress and start to recover a bit. And we'd be like, yes. And then he'd drop off again. And so this is over maybe about, I don't know, two months. It's quite a long time quite, and quite a difficult thing for the family to be up and down. But he's alive and well. He's home from hospital. He's not having treatment anymore. They never did really say what they thought had been keeping him ill, but he doesn't have cancer. And it's all... And there's, an <laughs> there's another girl, right? Sorry, this is the last one, last story. I'm just trying to illustrate a point, that when we pray together, some, God does listen. So this girl, and her mum says to me, she, she's, she lists off all these things that's wrong with her daughter. She's like about 23. She just had a baby, She's got cancer, lymphoma. So are there any doctors here who know about these things? I don't want to say too much and be medically inaccurate. Anyway, so she was on chemotherapy, and it was finishing her off the whole thing. The combination of the cancer and the treatment were just like... She had other comorbidities, and what had happened was her colon had stuck together. And 
I looked at an x-ray picture of it and it was like it was covered in dots and these were like little kind of poppers that had popped it all together and so it wouldn't work. And so the, 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 so the combination of the cancer and this colon thing, he, uh, it's got some initials but I can't remember. Anyway, so she was going to die. And again, they said, she's on end-of-life care. There's nothing they can do. I'm thinking, at 23 or 4, is that okay? And a young mum? I'm just thinking, this is awful. So we pray as a church. I say, come on, guys. We, we need to just do what we do and ask God. And then she starts to improve. And she's not got cancer anymore. They don't need to treat her anymore. They, they say, oh, the lymphoma's gone. We don't need to treat you anymore. That's fantastic. So then she, she was completely bedridden. She, had, she was delirious, would fall asleep when, people, when she was having a conversation with people. And now she's walking. They show a video on Facebook of her walking up and down. Um, albeit with a lot of help and lots of encouragement, but she's actually walking. Then they show next, a couple of weeks later, she's running. Again, not very well. She's not going to win a race, but she's actually running. And then they show pictures of her with a little girl and she's sitting on the floor. And, you, oh, man. I'm just, I, oh, Yeah. You know when you've seen too much to not pray? And I feel like that. I feel like, God, this is a perilous route to be on because it keeps meaning I'm going to go into situations which are hopeless with hope in my heart that I want to give to everybody else in the situation. But I realize that we're still in this delicate balance of, I don't understand all the details of how it works, that interaction between our faith and our prayers and the heart of God and his sovereign will, I don't understand. I kind of wish someone would explain it to me, but I kind of feel like there's everything to play for. Am I the only one who feels like in this day, there is everything to play for? I really do believe that. My goodness. So anyway, what's to stop the Lord delivering by many or by few? I need to watch the time because we're going to pray. So God moved. They all started. The enemy, Jonathan gets up there and they do their thing. They step out in faith and then God does the rest. In fact, if you read on a few verses, you read that the enemy, everyone's sword was against each other. They all started attacking each other. The earth quaked. It, the, the earth didn't quake because of Jonathan. The earth quaked because of God. The, the earth quaked because of the God of Jonathan. Right, I'm going to just jump on. I should tell you a little bit about Ukraine. Jonathan said, tell me. So anyway, Ukraine. There's this war in Ukraine. Putin comes into the east um, and really continues to do what he's already been doing for like several years and harass it. But this time he's got a whole big army and it's very intentional. We have a friend over there called Mark, Mark Wade. And he is 
on his way back to Romania, where he lives. But he does have a little apartment in the west of Ukraine, but he's heading all the way back to Romania, just as Mr. Putin's armies are coming in, same day. So just before the borders become rammed, he crosses through into Romania, and he's home and dry. So I message him and start talking to him and say, Mark, what are you going to do? He says, actually, I'm going back in in the next couple of days. So I'm in England, in Weymouth. I have no particular desire to go to Ukraine. And I say, what do you need, Mark? Do you need money or do you need boots on the ground? He said, I need boots on the ground. So within two weeks, we were, back, we were over in Ukraine, a little team of us from the prayer house, and we were helping practically. And then it just developed into me putting up, being kind of leading the team to put up this massive, massive tent, which is 30 meters long and 20-something meters wide and seven and a half meters high. You could park an aeroplane inside it. And it's now a feeding center in Chinevsi. We put we started putting the other one up before I came home. And since that time, God has opened so many doors, partly through my friend Mark, but just partly through the kind of fact that we're there and we're doing something that leads to something else. And now we have friends all the way through from the west to the east, right to the border. I was in Bakhmud just before Christmas um, when it was like a ghost town. But at least it was still standing. And I think now, if you look at pictures of it from the air, it's very much, very little of it left standing. But we were like pulling a family out from the firing line and bringing them home and bringing them out into some kind of safety. But the amazing things that God is, uh, you know, I really feel like God's eyes are on the nation of Ukraine. And I'll just say a little bit more about that in a second. But sometimes it's helpful to just tell ourselves what's to stop the Lord delivering by many or by few. You see, those we put now we've put a number of those big tents up in the country which are centers for internally displaced people where they're feeding many, many people. They're run by Christians, they're manned by Christians. And they've been an incredible, like, city of refuge in a time of crisis. Well, I didn't get permission to put the tent up from the government. I didn't get the international sponsorship to pay for it. I didn't recruit the team to cook the food and do all the logistic work. All I did was came in just at that crucial moment and could show some leadership because the random experiences I have in my life with tents and other things, construction, I was able to take leadership when no one else could to put these big tents up. So sometimes it's really helpful to say to ourselves, I can't fix all the world's problems, but I can show up. And I've got this sneaky feeling that when I show up, Jesus shows up with me. And that because of the Spirit of God on me, he'll give me wisdom and he'll create opportunities that, I'm going to say this in a very kind way, a normal person wouldn't have. 
because I'm not normal, because I've got the Spirit of God in me. So when, so this is really, I want to sow a seed of kind of expectation for us as a congregation, as a house of faith and a house of prayer, but also as individuals that we would say, we would have that kind of coded into our hearts. What's to stop it? Why shouldn't, what's to stop me showing up and saying, here I am, can you use me? Can, can I help? Can I do something useful? Right, here's, let's, so now, just on the Ukraine thing, I'm in the process of organizing a conference for pastors, and we've got a bunch of pastors from right in the war zone, where they're under bombardment every day, some from Kherson region, where the flooding was, some from Kiev, some from Rivna, and all across to the western area, and they're coming together just to really be refreshed and spend some time in the presence of God. And what's interesting is all of those people I didn't know 18 months ago, but now many of them I would consider dear friends. And God's done something, and I don't know why. And I've preached in a number of their churches, and God has moved. And, I've, and I think, God, why? That's the wrong question, isn't it? It's the wrong question. It's why not is the actual better question, which is Jonathan's question. So just real quick, zoom into Psalm 17, and I'm just going to try and wrap it up because otherwise I'll talk all day. You've got things to do. So this is a prayer of David, Psalm 17, and he's under pressure from Saul, it seems, and he's crying out and he's trying to say, God, I'm innocent. I don't know why I'm being harassed and hounded. And maybe that is your prayer today. You're saying, God, I, I, don't, I, don't, I still can't see why all this difficulty is coming my way because I don't think I've done anything to deserve it particularly. And he says, verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. From your presence. He's not looking for his vindication to come from any other source, but from the very presence of God himself. And then he goes on and he prays this prayer and he says, let your eyes behold the right. He says, you've tried my heart, blah, blah, blah. You've tested me. I think David prays a good prayer sometimes, and I think, oh, I don't know if I could actually say that. You've tested me, and you will find nothing. Sounds a bit like Job. I think I'm not even going to say that stuff. But anyway, let's jump on to verse 6. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. I call, <laughs> come on, I call on you. Because you will answer me, oh God. I call on you because you will answer me, oh God. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. Wow, wow. I, thank, I call on you for you will answer me. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. And then he says, verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. But that can also be translated equally well, distinguish me. 
by your steadfast love. Turn your face towards me. See, presence in the Hebrew word of, for presence, panim, is a plural word, and it can mean faces. It can be equally well translated faces. But it's, if you think about it, if somebody's present in the room when you're talking, where's their face? It's looking at you, isn't it? Where are their eyes? Their eyes are on you. How many times does David say, turn your face towards me? Let your eyes be on me. Listen. So we used to know this little girl. She used to come to our house a lot, and her mum was deaf. She'd had rube- her, her mum had had rubella when she was pregnant. She was deaf. So she used to, when she was trying to get our attention to tell us something, she would get hold of our face and turn it get in her little hands and turn it towards her. It's gorgeous. What she was doing, she was, she knew that for her mum to hear, her eyes and her ears and everything needed to be focused on her face when she was talking. That's what David is saying. Vindicate me by turning your face towards me. And then he says, distinguish me by your steadfast love. Let that be the thing. That distinguishes, let that be the thing that makes me stand out, that makes me different, because your face is towards me, and I'm distinguished by your steadfast love. So it's like I've experienced, I've been saturated in the steadfast love. My experience of life is having been saturated and pickled in the steadfast love of God. But actually, now, when I interact with people, They're experiencing the steadfast love of God through me. Dear Jesus, please let it be that way. And so when, if if I walk into, if you, just let's make it about you. If you walk into a room and Jesus' face is towards you. Wow. What does that do to the dynamics in that room. If you turn up at an airport in a country that is full of fear and terror because people are fleeing from an enemy and you come in and the face of Jesus is towards you. You may not be able to fix the whole world's problems, but you can show up. And I would love today that you and I just get infected by that spirit that was in Jonathan. Why don't we stand and just open our hearts to the awesome possibility of what God can do when we're distinguished by his steadfast love. Just reach out your hands. This is a gift from him, not from me. Jesus. Once again, Lord, turn your face towards us. Jesus. I'm going to say the word for Vanessa anyway, just in case Vanessa's listening somewhere. God was saying he's heard your hearts cry, Vanessa. And if your name isn't Vanessa... The word is still for you as well. He's heard your hearts cry. 
He wants to say he's near to the brokenhearted. You see, you don't have to be in the peak of physical health or the peak of oh, your life or your reputation, riding high on the crest of a wave to get in the car and go and pray for somebody who's sick because it's Jesus who's going to make the difference. The challenge for you and me is to daily dwell in his presence. To be like little Matilda used to be and grab hold of his face and turn it towards you. Say, Jesus, turn your face towards me. It's interesting, isn't it, that David was a prophet. He was being harassed by Saul, but he was he was also a prophet and he was prophesying about the one who would come, who would be distinguished by the steadfast love of God. And you and I are filled with that same spirit that filled Jesus. Jesus. Lord, I pray for every intractable situation that these precious ones face, families, individuals. As well, there's somebody just crying out for a, a life partner, somebody longing to be married, just be with someone for the rest of your life, for that person to notice you. And I pray in Jesus' name, if that's you, just put your hand on your heart secretly, quietly, without drawing a big attention to yourself, and just say, yes, Lord. Let that be for me. Hey, 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 Jesus. I would like to encourage you, if you don't already have a habit of daily drawing aside to be with Jesus, even if you have children and they're just not very tolerant of such things. Find a little pocket of time, even if it's on your way to work or walking the dog or whatever it is, or taking the children, I don't know, walking the children to school, getting the baby to sleep. Just let that be your moment where you tune into him and just say, Jesus, turn your face towards me. Build the habit of a lifetime. I remember, sorry, too many stories. More of you, Jesus, more in this place. Hey. Lord, we love you. I feel as well that there's some uh, guys just who are struggling with the whole issue of getting their sexual kind of things under control and just feeling disqualified. I feel like the Lord wants to just say to you, bro, 
I made you. I know what. I know how it works. But actually that he's right here with you, loving you, cheering you on, applauding your successes, not counting your failures, not joining in with you when you reproach yourself. And he's still, I, do you know what? I believe he still wants to lift you up, call you a prince, clothe you with his beautiful robe, change the way you perceive yourself and begin to do exploits through you like this jo Jonathan story.